What do the names of Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Beethoven, Michelangelo, Leonardo, Da Vinci, Winston Churchill, and Shakespeare have in common? What do these names have in common? They are household names that have been made famous through the various means and arts of which they are involved in. They are made famous because of the brilliant works that they have done, whether it's in a painting or music or other. Each of these names has been made famous. Winston Churchill was made famous for his diligence in World War II in leading Great Britain well and in honor in the midst of it. Gandhi, Mother Teresa, for their deeds of compassion, they're made known. Their works have been heard. You know, it's interesting when we think of the names of famous people who are known in and out of every household. Yes, there's those that have been made famous in generation and forgotten in the next. You know, how many of you will know famous names of today's generation of, of Taylor Swift or, or others besides hearing her name in the news? Many of them may have forgotten people like the Duke. I know some of you know who I'm referring to. But it's interesting the way these names become famous and are talked about from house to house, from generation to generation, because their legacy lives on. But of course, we're not here to talk about simply the fame of artists, of musicians, of actors or singers. We're here to talk about the fame of one worthy of being declared to the ends of the earth, the fame of one who is more excellent than any of these combined. And that is the fame of our God. And that's what Ruth 4 points us to this morning. As we close out our study in the book of Ruth, we are pointed to the fame and the glory of God and how his name and his name alone is worthy of being made famous to the ends of the earth. If you will, go ahead and turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. It will be on the screen momentarily. But just to, to give us a running start, to, to catch us back up where we've been in the book of Ruth. We've seen throughout this book, throughout this, these four short chapters, that Naomi has a great need to be redeemed. That Ruth has a need to be redeemed. Both are widows. Yes, Naomi has been provided the love of a daughter-in-law, that of Ruth. She has a loyal love, a love that is steadfast, and as we'll see, is more than that of seven sons combined. Naomi, though, has felt as God has touched her bitterly, that he's forsaken her there at the end of chapter 1. And then, of course, in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth just happens to walk into the field of Boaz. Just so happens as God sovereignly places her there. And then in Ruth 3, we see the, what it, some would say is a scandal of a proposal, but which is really an act of faith in Ruth proposing to Boaz, asking, won't you 
be the answer to your prayer and cover me with your wings. Brothers and sisters, Ruth has been a grand love story, and yet we have yet to reach the climax. That's where we come to here in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Because as we left last week in Ruth 3, there was a snag. As Ruth proposes to Boaz, Boaz tells us there is another before him, and we're left waiting. So let's read God's word from Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, as we enter the climax of Ruth. Hear the word of God from Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the land the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Mahalon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap 
and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. If have understood Ruth 4 rightly, here is the main idea. The name of the Lord is to be made famous, for he has provided a redeemer to restore life to his people. Let me repeat that, and it's on the screen as well. The name of the Lord is to be made famous, for he has provided a redeemer to restore life to his people. And we're going to look at two points flowing from that main idea. Point number one, a redeemer to restore life. And point number two, a name worthy of fame. Most of the sermon will be in point one, a redeemer to restore life. Let's look at that first point then. We see there in verse one, Boaz wastes no time going up to the gate to settle the matter. For Naomi had just said as we left chapter three that, wait, my daughter, the matter will be settled today. And and immediately, now Boaz had gone up, as Naomi is telling Ruth this, Boaz has gone up to the gate and sat down. He's in process of settling the matter as Naomi is probably telling Ruth to wait patiently. Boaz is honorable man going to settle this matter. But notice what happens as he goes to settle this matter. First, yes, he he sees the one coming to him there in verse 2, who is the near redeemer. He, He calls out and says, sit down, my friend. Not even worthy enough of a name here of this nearer redeemer. But he calls, friend, sit down here. But then notice what else he does. He calls ten men, ten elders of the city to also come and sit down. Why? Because there's much more going on in this story of redemption than just a yes or no. And that's what we're going to see here as we consider this first point. We're going to see three things that transpire within this redemption. First, we see that of a transaction taking place. Second, we see that of a prayer. And third, a child. So let's look first at this transaction that transpires. Again, Boaz has to call these ten elders to sit down with him and this near redeemer. He has to do so in calling these witnesses because this is a legal binding agreement. Redemption isn't just some private matter. Redemption and this transaction of redeeming property or another is not a private, personal matter. It's a legal binding contract, which is why the witnesses are needed. Think of how many of you would go and sign a legal binding document without a notary. I hope none of you. I hope you're protected wisely by having things notarized that are of great value because it covers you. 
And the same goes with these witnesses. They are eyewitnesses of what transpires to hold accountable this contract. To say, look, we've witnessed this. There's no going back. There's no he said, she said. Think of how many spits and spats you've got into over he said, she said. No one there to witness it. Think how much more it matters of something of importance of a redemption. And having these eyewitnesses there and present. So Boaz gathers these ten men of the city. We see there in verse, uh, the end of verse 1, or 2 there. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he proceeds with the matter. He begins to go into the matter once these witnesses are set there in place. He says, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And after I... And I come after you. He presents the binding contract to this other redeemer who is near. Saying, here's what's at stake. Will you be willing to buy it? Will you be willing to agree to these terms and take it? Here's the eyewitnesses. It's all in place. All you've got to do is yay or nay. At first, it seems everything goes south. The other redeemer says, I will redeem it. I will redeem it. But notice what happens here right after he says, I will redeem it there in verse five. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The Redeemer, who's nearer, immediately backs out of this. There in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. We don't know what it is that is hindering this other redeemer's inheritance. Maybe he's already married. Maybe he's already got a son who is standing to inherit all that he has. So to buy land is one thing. Yes, it's going to cost him, but he thinks he can make profit. But to redeem and, and to take in Ruth is going to ruin something of his inheritance. Again, what we don't know. Whatever the case, though, we see a fact in this redemption transaction. Every bit of it must be agreed upon by both parties. The whole of the transaction must be agreed upon by both parties, by both the other redeemer and that of Boaz. For this binding contract to take place, it can't be just take part of it and not the other. It's take it all together or nothing. That's what is being bound right here in this legal binding redemption story of Boaz and Ruth. 
Boaz has to make sure this other redeemer agrees to this transaction or he has to agree to it. It's binding for both of them. And the thing is, of course, this is the answer Boaz wants. This other redeemer isn't willing to count the cost and take on this full binding agreement to both acquire the land and that of Ruth. He's not willing to perpetuate the name of the dead by giving a firstborn son to that of Mahalon. But Boaz is. Boaz is willing to say, I agree to every bit of this transaction. I not only agree to it, I'm going to make sure I follow through every customary deed to make sure this is binding. Notice what it says in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Sure, we don't take off sandals. I don't want to be doing a deal with any of you and taking off a sandal. Some of your feet might stink, including mine. But take it in this way. It's as deathly binding, it is as seriously binding as that of a spit shake. You men probably remember it more than you ladies. If we were to do a spit shake with somebody, it was serious. The binding agreement here that is transpiring with Boaz and this other redeemer is serious. And he's sealing the deal with the exchange of a sandal. And saying, you're my witnesses, men. You're my witnesses that this, not only have I agreed to the terms, you're witnesses that he's neglected the terms and said, it's mine. You witness all this. The transaction now is complete. I buy the land from Naomi and I acquire Ruth as mine. You see this this day. You're my eyewitnesses that this has taken place. There is no going back now. Everything of the legal transaction is bound in this. So that's part of what we see here going on. The seriousness of a transaction in redemption. But it's not just here of this transaction. A prayer proceeds and goes further. That's the second thing we see in this story of redemption. A prayer for that of what will take place. So he, he calls them to be witnesses. And, and there in verse 11 it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. But then they pray a prayer. May the Lord make the women the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This prayer was crucial. It was crucial because not only did they affirm and bear witness to it, but they wanted it to succeed. They wanted Boaz and Ruth to be able to perpetuate the name of the dead. And while this may seem of a stretching point, I want you to consider this. Ruth had been married for 10 years to Mahalon before he died. 10 years in a society that doesn't put off childbearing for the sake of a woman to pursue a career. Children 
mattered deeply to not only the mother, but also to the survival of the people. Because there was no retirement home to put mom and dad in once they were old. They had to have children to care for them. They had to have a son to inherit the land and to keep their name going. So for Ruth to have been married to Mahalon for 10 years, she struggled with infertility, most likely. So not only are they praying that, yes, this would succeed, but praying to God to give life and open her womb, just as he did for that of Sarah. But in particular, it uses the emphasis of there of Rachel and Leah, who the Lord sovereignly opened their wombs to bear the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Think about that. Here, here the prayer is for them to be as numerous as that of Rachel and Leah, who bore 12 sons to that of uh, Jacob, to the house of Israel. The Lord opened the womb and blessed it. That's their prayer. But not only that, to, to be that of, of the house of prayers whom Tamar bore to Judah. If you've, it's been a while since you've studied the book of Genesis. Judah and Tamar is one of the most interesting stories. There towards the end, or middle towards the end of, of Genesis, right before you go into the narrative of Joseph. Judah had sons, one was married to Tamar, didn't have a son. Tamar went to his brother, he acted foolishly and died. And then a third son was promised to Tamar. And yet, that fell through. And yet, Judah and Tamar were brought together to bring about the son, Perez, in which the line of Christ comes through. God sovereignly protected this line from continuing, which is where we get here in Ruth, where we get ultimately to Christ. That's the prayer of these people to see Ruth's womb flourish, to have these children it's desire for the dead to be perpetuated through offspring. And of course, that brings us to the third thing we see, a child. The prayer is answered in the midst of this redemption. We see there in verse 13, so, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. A son is given in the midst of this redemption. A son is given. But notice how it describes this son and how this redemption transpires there in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The child is the one who ultimately redeems Naomi. Why? Wait, I thought this was about a love story between Boaz and Ruth. It is. But this son is one given in the name of Mahalon, the son of Naomi. So this 
grandson of hers is restoring her family line. It is through this child comes life and restoration to Naomi. The one who thought God's hand had dealt bitterly with her is now restored with life of a child. She no longer is empty. She has a child in her lap in which life and restoration and redemption come. It is through this child that this redemption comes. He's the one who will. And the very fact of his name, Obed, is a servant, a worshiper. This child is the child in which Naomi will be restored. But it's not just Naomi who will find restoration through this. Look as this story of Ruth closes there in verses 18 and following. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered fathered Amenadab, and Amenadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. A man after God's own heart. A king of Israel. We go from Ruth being in the days of the judges, of where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, to the story of how King David comes about. We go from everyone doing what is right in their own eyes to one who walks in and is a man after God's own heart. But it's not just David that comes from this. Matthew 1.1 This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Friends, the book of Ruth is about a love story between Boaz and Ruth, but it is much more. It's about how God has been sovereignly working to bring redemption, not just to Naomi, but to a people both in Israel and ultimately to the nations. It's a foreshadowing of God's redemptive work. And just like a transaction is, has to go through and take place for this binding agreement between Boaz and this other redeemer, another transaction transpires in the death of Jesus Christ. A transaction of perching us from the bondage of sin and death to be brought to life in Jesus. A transaction that is made by the shedding of his own blood as he lays down his own life. Our sin demanded death. It demanded blood. And yet Jesus was willing to purchase that by the shedding of his own. And he seals it. Instead of taking off a sandal, he seals that transaction that not only did he die, but he rose from the grave. He defeated death. And that is the proof that this transaction has been made complete. That sin was satisfied before God's eyes by the death of his son. That the devil and the death and death had been defeated by Jesus being the first to rise from the grave. Do you see this? The story of Ruth here points us 
to this great transaction, the purchase of us from sin and death by the blood of Jesus. A transaction has taken place to purchase us, just as Boaz had to purchase the land from Naomi, the land that was of Elimelech, and acquire Ruth. He has acquired us through the blood of Jesus. But like this transaction, it's not just that a transaction had to take place. It's both parties had to come to agree to the terms of this transaction. What happens if Boaz hadn't agreed to the whole of the transaction? He would have not acquired the land of Elimelech or that from Naomi or that of Ruth. He doesn't acquire it if he doesn't agree to the terms Christian, have you ever considered the fact that when we come to a covenant, legal, binding contract with God for our souls, that we must agree to the terms in its fullness, the terms he has set up? It's not that of our own terms. We need to ensure that we are agreeing to his terms. What are those terms? To enter life through Jesus. Believing that he is the way to eternal life. That he is the truth. By believing that he is the one who has settled the debt of sin by his own death on, death on the cross. By believing that he has been raised from the dead. By placing our faith in him and him alone for salvation. That he's our king and that we're going to take up our cross and follow him. These are the terms that he has given us in this transaction. The question is, will we believe it or will we only believe what we want to believe? Will we only believe and accept part of the transaction? There's a temptation that if I believe that Jesus died, he saved me from my sins. I don't have to believe he's my king. Or that I don't have to to follow him all the days of my life. That I don't have to, to do what he says. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've thought this transaction had been settled and yet you've not agreed to the terms that Jesus lays out, you have not agreed to the transaction of the purchase of your soul from the death of Hades. The way to eternal life is through Christ and Christ alone. Through his blood, believing he has done it. That's the beauty of Christianity. Christian, get that. There's nothing of religiosity and religious traditions that earns our salvation. All of our religious traditions are not what earns salvation. You can be as morally upright as we want to be, and yet that is not what earns salvation. That's not the terms of this transaction. It's not clean yourselves up and get right and tack on a little Jesus. It's lean into me. I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You either believe I did it all or you don't. Friend, what are you resting in for your salvation? Is it that you've cleaned yourself up and made yourself right before Jesus with a little Jesus tacked on? Are you leaning wholly in Jesus? Depending upon him for your very life. Over and over and over again. 
These are the terms of his covenant transaction. That's why he came to shed his blood. We need to lean into that. To lean into him and him alone for our salvation. Believing that he has done it all. And the only thing we need to do is recognize it. And see our great need of him. And rest in him alone for salvation. Friend, that's what Christianity is all about. It's about resting in Jesus and Jesus alone. And like the prayer that was prayed for Boaz, the prayer for us is that we would be a people who act worthily in Ephrath and renowned in Bethlehem, but of course, acting worthily in our lives, acting worthy in all that we do, walking in holiness and godliness. That is the prayer as we conform more to Christ, as we see more of his infinite worth, we're more conformed to him because we see how lovely he is. We see how glorious he is and how worthy of imitation he is. That's a prayer for us in the Christian life. We, we rest in the transaction that's been purchased to us and we're conformed to it because of we see God's great love for us in Christ. But it also leads to something else. And that's where we turn in our second point. A name worthy of fame. As much as God has done to redeem a people to himself, the pursuit he has gone after us in orchestrating every part of redemption for his purposes and for his glory. He's orchestrated all this. He's the one who led Ruth to the field of Boaz. She just didn't happen to be there. He led her to it so that redemption could come for her and Naomi. God has worked out every part of redemption in drawing us to himself by opening our eyes and our hearts to see the glory of God through the power of the gospel. And therefore, we need to see how worthy his name is of praise. Again, going back to four, verse 14, the, this is where the main idea of this whole text comes. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. May his name be renowned or made famous in Israel. May the God who has redeemed you and not left you without a Redeemer be praised in Israel. His name was worthy of fame. Why? Because he had not dealt with Naomi in bitterness. He had not left her without a redeemer. He had not left her without a daughter-in-law to devote herself to him and to prove herself more than seven sons to her. God had provided over and over for Naomi, and he was worthy of that fame in how he had cared for her. But again, of course, God has done more than just provide redemption for Naomi. He has provided redemption for us. He has provided redemption in another son, that of Jesus Christ, who came and was laid in a manger. He provided a way for us to be restored to himself. How much more is he worthy of praise? John Piper commented this on this chapter. He said, the renown of this child will not be mainly in himself, 
It will come through his offspring, David, and through David's offspring, the Messiah. The renown here promised, the fame promised in Ruth 4, is about ultimately that of the Messiah, Christ. That his fame would be made known. That he would be made known. Not just in Israel, though, but to the entire nations. Because God has not just come to redeem a people for himself of one nation. He's come to redeem the nations to himself. To again quote Piper, he says, The glory of Christ is that he comes from the nation and he dies for the nations. His blood was shed for the nations and the nation's blood ran in his veins. For that of his great-grandmother was that of a Moabite woman. The nations are redeemed through the blood of Christ. And his fame is worthy of being made known to the ends of the earth among the nations. Friends, do we get the infinite worth of our God in his worthiness to be made famous? This is why we want to regularly talk about the glory of God. Because his glory is worth being talked about and made known both among ourselves and with others. In fact, making the Lord's name famous is at the very heart of evangelism and missions. For the task of evangelism is to make the fame of God known in what he has done through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus. To rescue sinners with the aim to persuade them to believe this. Let me repeat that again. For the task of evangelism is to make the fame of God known in what he has done through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus, to rescue sinners with the aim to persuade them to believe this. And missions is crossing culture, language, and ethnic barriers for this same purpose. Do you get that? The, the push for evangelism, the push for missions, isn't just something we do and we need to will ourselves to obey. Missions and evangelism flows out of recognizing what God has done to purchase us for himself. Recognizing the transaction cost of the blood of Jesus and saying, this is worth declaring. It's worth making known. God is worthy of all fame because of this work of redemption for us. The very reason many of us struggle with evangelism and missions is not because we're afraid. We like to use that as an excuse. The reason we often struggle in evangelism and missions is because we love little. We fail to see the extent of God's purchase of us in the blood of Christ. We're not moved enough by the glory of God. Christian, that's why we struggle in missions and evangelism. We think we just need a little help. We don't realize the depth of what it cost Jesus in order to purchase us for himself. But when that begins to go off in our minds. We can't help but tell others about who Jesus is. We can't help but talk about God and his magnificent work of redemption. When we rightly see God in all his glories, we can't help but make him famous to the ends of the earth. 
Friends, we talk about famous people all the time. We like to get caught up in in all the e-news and different things, or at least my generation does. Maybe yours does as well. Like to know the ins and outs of everyone's life, talk about it. But why is it we struggle to make famous the name of God? Because we need to see the beauty of what he's done for us in Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you struggle in evangelism, I don't want you to guilt it, to be guilted into doing it. But I want you to be moved by the awe and glory of God. The same God who has purchased us through the blood of Jesus for himself, purchasing us out of sin and death to restore us to life. We have life in the blood of Jesus. We have life because Jesus himself has ascended from the grave and ascended up into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. We have life in that. Therefore, let us make that known. Let us make his glory known as we go out from this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you.